This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of May the 1st, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is the 250th episode of the IBJ Podcast, but just the first time we felt like we needed to acknowledge just how long it's been around. The first episode was posted on June the 4th, 2018. And as regular listeners know, our only regular guest outside of IBJ's editorial staff has been Pete Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner. He first was featured on March 11th, 2019, after becoming one of IBJ's regular columnists for personal finance. And over about 20 podcast episodes since then, we have discussed investments, insurance, budgeting, retirement, buying a car, saving for college, giving to charities, quitting your job, and how to prepare for the next financial calamity. But after almost every interview, I usually feel like I've avoided some question that's a little too touchy, maybe even a little bit too mercenary, and it's likely to open a can of worms. Well, today is the day that I ask those questions. The kid gloves are off, and we're going to talk about some of the sensitive topics, some of the most sensitive topics in personal finance. For example, how to step in when your parents can't manage their finances anymore. Who in a marriage should have final say on big purchases? How to prepare for the financial implications of divorce? How much you should know about your inheritance? And how to know when it's time to change financial advisors? Without further ado, here's our conversation. As always, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Pete Dunn, aka Pete the Planner. How are you? I am enthralled to be on your 250th episode. You don't look a day over 60, by the way. <laughs> I purposefully uh, got my hair dyed for this episode, even though nobody can see me. It looks great. You, you've taken it well. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, okay. So you've uh, you have ruined the surprise. It is the 250th episode. And I thought uh, today, I mean, since, I mean, I, I could not go back and figure out how many times you've been on the show. It may be 20. I always feel like at the end of you know our chats, there's always something I want to ask, and I'm just too chicken to ask. So we're asking all of these questions today. I love it. Let, let's get uncomfortable on the 250th. That way, it calls into question whether it'll be a 251. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's up to you. Yeah. Let's dip our toes into the theme this week. Okay, this is a sensitive but fairly pragmatic question. You actually had a column about this a couple of weeks ago. If it looks like your elderly parents are beginning to make poor decisions with money or showing some signs of cognitive decline that maybe could affect their finances, how can you help them? What, what is the way that you can insert yourself into the situation without blowing things up? I would like to suggest as we begin this that the exception to the rule is that you won't need to help them. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Right. No, right. Exactly, man. Like, Here's my experience. Here's what I've seen. This will be, as you think about the financial threads that run through your life, this will be one of the most complicated tasks, operations, campaigns that you will ever do is to weigh in and assist another adult 
with their finances. And, and don't, don't get me wrong, helping your kids with their finances is hard enough, but stepping into your parents' lives, making sure that they don't feel overly judged, that they don't feel criticized, uh, and then you keeping your head while discovering strange things, it is trying. And, and so I'd love to talk about it because it is rife uh, with opportunity for error. And there's very little satisfaction that comes with doing it, but it's so wildly important to do. Yeah. It sounds like the first thing that needs to happen is there's a conversation. And it's very similar, I, I imagine, to the uh, maybe you shouldn't be driving anymore conversation. <laughs> You know, I hadn't thought of that. It's probably it's probably very similar. Mm-hmm. I, and the the other thing is, um, if we want to take a, a step back to pragmatism for a moment, who's going to be cleaning up the pieces anyway? Uh, like, if the the survivor is going to uh, be cleaning up the estate or a failed while living situation. You might as well step in and say, look, while there's some still resources to go around, can I help weigh in on how best to use those? Because otherwise, you're just you're you're passive. You're just taking it and you don't have any idea of the trauma that you're going to have to deal with when it's way too late. So I don't know if you've been in a situation where you've had to help somebody reach this topic or maybe even do it yourself. But um, I mean, what's a nice way to, to bring this up with your parents? Uh, I think it would just it would just go with a very honest question of like, hey, what's your financial stability looking like over the next decade or so? And I'll tell you, that's a hard enough question for a 45 year old to answer. Yeah. But if it is met with a brush off, if it is met with a lack of understanding of the question, then you you may have discovered something because by the time you reach your 70s or 80s, theoretically, you've been retired for a few years and you should have the way things work. If there's uncertainty as a person ages, that's bad because the retirement plan that that got you to the finish line has to get you to the ultimate finish line and it shouldn't get worse as it goes. And if it's starting to feel like there's cracks and if the person's like, well, actually, it's funny you ask because I, I don't know. Or if they're so dismissive, then I would love to, I would love to take a look because uh, I know I'll be helping mom with this someday, or maybe I'll be helping you with this someday. And I just want to make sure that, that I can do the best I can to support you. You know, one one of those sorts of things. I imagine you might also come into a situation where, I mean, it looks like maybe they're not paying their bills. Absolutely. I think you will also find, I mean, here's what we're looking for. Uh, And I, I, I am not a cynical person. But the more you say I'm not a cynical person, the more cynical you sound. Uh, uh, But I don't believe we're looking for fraud. I don't believe we're looking for someone taking advantage of them, whether it be some scammer or a financial advisor or something. I I think you're going in to say, are you paying too much for your car insurance? Are you paying too much for your digital services at home? Are you you missing opportunities? Those sorts of things are where you're sniffing it out. And that's why I like running a credit po- report alongside your elderly parent, freezing their credit when they're right there, because that that way you can lock down the risks and it gives you a great glance as to what is really going on. Yeah. And then I wanted to talk about some of those specific steps. So, for example, start with getting a credit report for both parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. So you got to be physically there. You got to sit down with them and say, hey, let's let's take a look. They're going to have to answer some questions like, oh, hey, did you have a 
a car loan in 1987 with an Arcadia bank, you know, these sort of things that you could never think of. Uh, and so you get into the report, you, you see their credit lines. You see, you don't, the score doesn't matter, by the way, just so you know, the score doesn't matter. It's about the credit lines. They're not going to be borrowing money at 80. No one's going to lend them money at 80. You, you are just saying, okay, what's there? What do they know about? What do they not know about? And then once you're in there, lock it down, freeze their credit, uh, make sure that you keep their passwords and pin numbers and those sorts of things off to the side. So if for some reason they ever needed to access it again, you can help them access it. So to freeze the credit, I mean, you've got to go to all three primary credit agencies, right? The Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Yeah, it's a giant pain in that wherever. Uh, it stinks and you got to do it for each one. So it is about a 20 minute process if you're good at it. Probably 35 if you're not me. Right. So, I mean, it, it takes, I'll just be honest, like, dude, I've done it a lot. It, it, it takes a while and it's a little bit of a pain. But once you get the hang of it, but here's the thing you yourself should have it done, right? It, your spouse should have it done. So maybe practice on yourself. And so it's easier when by the time you get to your parents. I was a part of the big anthem uh, leak probably, I don't know, five or six years ago. And it probably took me three hours to figure out how to freeze my credit on all three of those those well, uh, I'm, services. I'm not here to start casting aspersions, but it sounds like you're terrible at it. Mason. I'm pretty bad at it, but I, I, I guess if, my parents would be even worse. If I back up, uh, if I may back up a, a half step on all of this, if you have a sibling, uh, an adult sibling, uh, let them know what's going on. And as, as you're doing these things, be weirdly explicit with your parents as to what you're doing. All right, mom, now uh, we are going to go into your career report and take a look. Okay, dad, now we're going into yours. It's like so much so that you feel like you're being filmed. I just think it's the right thing to do. And it's not that you, so you can later say, well, I told you the whole time what we were doing. It's not that. It's just, and this is uncomfortable. This is private. And, and so you want it to feel somewhat official and professional. I'm guessing you need to check out the credit card statements. You do. And and the thing is, you're going to learn a lot about what is there based on the credit report. Like credit report is like the the base level blood panel, right? It's going to tell you where to look. Uh, and then once you find that, oh, there's a Capital One visa uh, with a $37,000 balance and you can say, hey, do you know about this? And then they may say no, or they may say, yeah, it's okay. And then you can say, it's not. Okay. And, and then you can help them. Uh, identify all the sources of income. And I imagine that when you're 70, you might have a ton. You have investments, pensions, social security, annuities. Yeah, they're going to have at least one, right? And arguably, okay. at least two, really. I mean, you're going to have probably, if you have two living parents, you're going to have uh, social security probably for for both, right? And then you potentially could have a pension and you're likely to see some supplemental ancillary income streams as well. And you just have to make sure that when one of them passes away, which streams remain? You're like an you're a deputized financial planner at this point, right? You're you're like which ones remain, and and then that's how you can start to talk to them about the advice they've been given by their financial professionals. Might you? I mean, at some point, need to bring in a financial planner, potentially. Yeah, and again, you're this isn't about financial planning, although it certainly feels like it is. It, it's it's about protecting their interest and it's about stability, which isn't financial planning. It's just like, are you going to be a victim of a scam? Are you, do you have a sustainable strategy? And then how much of a bag am I going to be left holding in the event that your strategy stinks? You know, my buddy's uh, mother-in-law passed away 
And so his wife was in the, in the position of helping her dad just figure out what was going on with Social Security. And then that was an epic journey. It, it is. It was weird. You bring up Social Security here for a second. It is an epic journey. It's very difficult. I'll say anecdotally, most times you call the Social Security office and you talk to, or you go to the local office. Amazing professionals. Amazing. They know so much. They are incredibly helpful. It's shocking. It's shocking. I will also say this, and I, I've come to figure this out. The hardest years of your life financially are 47 to 53 years old because of what you and I are talking about right now is that that you were dealing with these uber complex issues that that you're on the outside of, but you're involved with, like your parents' finances. That's why any challenge that you've dealt with prior to this, it's so personal to you and you have such a stake in it that it's almost easier to navigate. This one, you're disconnected. You don't have authority. There are feelings and behaviors involved. And so even helping the, uh, the survivor through the death of their loved one, that gets incredibly uh, treacherous as well. On the topic of uh, spouses, let's say you are in a one or two income household. One person makes significantly more than the other spouse. And like, let's say you're an attorney and you make $100,000 a year while your spouse is a teacher who makes $50,000 a year. And I know that you've encountered this question before. Do you think that the person with a higher income should have ultimate authority on how the money is spent? And in particular, the discretionary money? I love this conversation. Again, if I was ever invited to parties, I would want to talk about this, but I'm not. And I wouldn't go if I was. Dollars don't equal votes. Dollars don't equal votes, right? So if if one person has all the income, they don't get all the votes. If one person has slightly more, they don't get all the votes. I, I think it's the couples that voice that and give that idea some oxygen that, hey, we got to figure this out together. We have a collective income. I find that to be successful, a successful relationship from a financial perspective. Now, Mason, here's where I get a little bit nervous. It's where reality suggests otherwise, that people act as though their income leads to votes and they don't talk about it. That, that is where you get nervous about protecting yourself in the case of a divorce. Right? And then it starts to, to spider into all these other things. But Dollars don't equal votes is maybe the best way to think about it. And, and I would also say gender dynamics play a role here. It's still in the year 2023 that uh, anyone having this conversation was probably socialized and raised in a, in a period in which gender dynamics were different than they are today. And so I think saying that is not inappropriate. I think not saying that is 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 glib at best, right? You have to understand that if you're in a relationship a heterosexual relationship and the woman makes more than than the man. Fantastic, by the way. But also there could be some uh, multi-generational feelings of awkwardness there and give a voice. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're, you're the person in the relationship who makes the least. I would love to be in that position. <laughs> and, and, and you are for, you know, uh, one person equals one vote, whereas your spouse is like, no, one dollar equals one vote. It, is there an approach that you you could take to to maybe earn yourself some more input in there? I mean, if for example, maybe suggesting keeping separate or keeping separate checking accounts so you could control the money that you make. How about a hot take on the two hundred fiftieth episode of the IBJ podcast? Are you ready for this? Yeah. If that is really the stance, I think your dollar should be spent on marriage counseling. 
I'm I'm serious because it, by the way, it's not about trust. This has nothing to do with trust. I think people, I, I used to get caught up in this, that if you don't trust your spouse with money, you don't trust your spouse. I think that's hooey. My wife doesn't trust me to do surgery on her kids. Mm-hmm. She trusts me. Okay. Like it, that's a dumb thing I've said in the past. Mm-hmm. I think in this circumstance, what you're saying is that we are not equal entities within our, within our household. Uh, and again, I think gender dynamics end up playing a lot of role here. Uh, and I think that's where we perpetuate some of the ugly things that that we've come to dislike about our society is that I think I think you got to go talk to someone because you got to advocate for yourself just because you make less money. Are you are you is your self-worth less than the person you share your life with? And I, I would say the answer is no, that's not the case. <clears throat> this to me is a super interesting question or topic just because my wife and I have had these conversations and I think we're generally one person is one vote. Yeah. And I think we have a very good understanding about money. But there <laughs> there still are times when I'm online and I'm like, oh, you know, I really want to buy this thing that costs $400. Right? I want to make some kind of expenditure, you know, that costs, I mean, a pretty significant amount of money. And, you know, I really should uh, run it up the flagpole because that's that's kind of the policy. But then part of me is like, you know what? I do make a little bit more. I just should be able to buy this. I appreciate the honesty, really. I, I think there's a couple elements, actual tactical things that you can do to address this. Number one, the very simple, hey, if the shoe were on the other foot and the dollar amount was the same, would I be bothered if uh, she didn't mention it to me? Yeah, and if that, pa- if that passes the sniff test, great. Yeah. The other thing is I don't mind, uh, and I hate the terms, allowance, fun money, whatever, whatever. I don't care what you call it, but they have to be equal amounts. This is where this goes off the rails quick. One person makes more money, so they get $400 a month to do whatever they want. The other person makes less money, so they get $150 a month to do whatever they want. And you say, oh, we get we get allowance. Do it with your allowance. That is not fair in my from my perspective. And, and I will also say it is an informed perspective because I've had to watch and pick up the pieces of people who choose to do it that way. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with the 250th episode of the IBJ podcast and our conversation with Pete the Planner about some of the most sensitive questions in personal finance. Uh, Speaking of picking up the pieces, let's say that you are married, but you know that you are headed for a divorce. Either you expect to file for divorce or you think your spouse is headed in that direction. Is there something that you can do? before divorce is filed, to put yourself in as good a position financially as possible. Peter Dunn is not a licensed attorney in the state of Indiana. No, I'm not going to give legal advice here, but I'm going to give some practical uh, guidance. Credit reports, first place to go. Because what happens is in a divorce is you sometimes don't realize some of the debts that you may be forced to take on or that you're on the hook for that you didn't even realize. So that's an interesting place to start. So uh, I'm, I'm sorry, could, yeah. could you repeat that though? What is it that I'm supposed to do? Credit report. Check a credit report for my spouse. For yourself. 
Oh, just because, for myself. Yeah, because you might be an authorized user. You might be a co-borrower. Oh, I see. It's, you need to understand that. Here's the I, other might, thing. I might be signed on to a credit card that I don't know about, for example. Yeah. And by the way, there's nothing necessarily nefarious about that. It just might be how it went down when things were fine. I, look, I, I might be oversharing here. I think both of the cars within my household are in my name, but not because I'm a power freak, although Mrs. Planner may argue with that. It's because I went out to the dealership on that weekend while she was doing something else. And so I could sign and my credit could deal with it. So like that, that wasn't, uh, Hey, it, 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 you can't handle this. It was just like, Hey, I'm just trying to help, help us out, uh, by not dragging her to the dealership. So you may find some of that on your credit report. So that's, that's number one, check your credit report and understand what you might be getting yourself into. Number two, and this one's, this one is informed by what I have seen. Make sure that if you plan on arguing to keep the house, that it actually makes financial sense. Mm. This is anecdotal. I've seen so many people keep the house, keep the family home, and it's a massive mistake, whether they're the breadwinner or they're not the breadwinner. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, so that's number two. Number three is just get get a budget together. It, it Maybe you don't budget as a couple, maybe the other person does the money, but if you don't know what it costs to live on your own, you, you better understand that because I think it's going to help with the words you might use to introduce the idea of a relationship transition, which of course is the way we say divorce in the <laughs> 2020s. But you need to be armed with information and numbers, not just feelings. Um, in interest of time, I want to move on to one of uh, my most hot buttony of hot button topics is inheritance. I have a number of questions here. Let's start off with this one. Let's say you're doing some long-term financial planning you are confident that you will have some kind of inheritance from your parents. Should you ask for details of your inheritance now? This is an actual question that came up uh, when my wife and I were doing our, our financial planning. Our professional was asking, so do you have like an idea of like what you might get? You know, <laughs> without, without trying to say the death yeah. of your parents. And yeah. I'm like, I really don't and I'm not super interested in bringing it up because that's not who I am. But look, um, I'm going to give you my opinion, and that's all it is. Uh, I, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I'm with you. Like I, I don't. I'm not going to ask that. I think other people have. I've seen other people do it, and that that's their relationship. But for me, I'm not going to my parents and be like, "Hey, I'm doing some estate planning. What, what you know, when you're dead, um." What do you think you're going to leave me? Like I do, I like I'd rather do my own financial planning with the resources I have, and that ends up being gravy. And you could say, yeah, but it impacts your planning decisions now based on that amount. Well, too bad. I, I think it's weird, uh, and that's my opinion. If you've done it a different way, awesome. You have a different relationship with your folks than I have with mine. But for me, I would never do that. My take on it was, don't count on it. You don't know what's going to happen. You can only control what you can control. I, I've told this story, I think, on your podcast before. I've seen so many times where a grandparent says, hey, we'll pay for your kid's college. Don't you worry about it. And then the time gets there, life happens uh, and the money's not there. And because they counted on someone else and they didn't do their own financial planning, see it all the time. How about this one? Let's say you're pretty confident that your parents are bleeding money on something like gambling or they, they've got some crazy idea about investing in, in crypto. Or, or they're giving large gifts to friends and family. 
Is there any way to ensure that there's going to be something there for you? Yeah, every I was tracking until the the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I like um on some level I would think I want to make sure there's something there for them so they have the stability that we st- talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Personally, if I'm trying to protect my own inheritance by by you know talking dad out of being on DraftKings, I'm not interested in that. I don't care because uh, again, that's my opinion. It is a financial opinion, but that's my opinion. It's it's protected for them. I'm not protected for myself. Other people, I've seen them do it differently, and that's fine for them. But you asked me, and they've never been on your podcast. I'm gonna go deeper into this rabbit hole, and I, I want to say. Just briefly to the listeners, these are not ideas that I have now come up with. This is stuff that I've seen on, on financial uh, advice sites, quite real questions that people have asked. Sure. Let's say that you have a fairly significant amount of money or real estate or some investments. You have more than one child and you want to make sure that one gets more than the others. Can you be sure that whatever you specify in your estate will hold up to a legal challenge? Okay. So... I've seen several episodes of Perry Mason and other courtroom dramas, but still not an attorney. Um, here, here, here's what I've seen. Uh, you can spell out pretty much whatever you want in your estate plan. And yes, anyone can fight that. Whether they're successful or at it or not, I don't know. Uh, if that is your intent, you better not print off your estate documents off the internet. If that is what you want to do, you better have a buckled up, uh, estate plan with an attorney that only does estate plans, not an IP attorney who's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for a few hundred bucks in the weekend. Don't do that. But yeah, you know what? Look, some people's families are different. You, you get, let's speak frankly, Mason, like maybe you've got someone that's caught up in substance abuse or uh, maybe has some mental health challenges and, and there's a, a pragmatism to doing this. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing shady about that. It's It's just very hurtful and very real. Yeah, you can do that with attorney. Um, and yeah, they could fight it, but I, I couldn't tell you the chances of it were, uh, succeeding with the appeal. Speaking of substance abuse, for example, let's say um, my son gets married and the uh, the person that he marries ends up having a gambling problem or a substance abuse problem. Uh, I am very concerned that if I am to, to die, that the money in my estate will go to both my son and his wife or his partner, is there any way to specify that or any way to arrange things so that only my son gets the money? How frequently do you think your son will play episode 250 of the IBJ podcast on first dates just to see if it passes the test? <laughs> Zero. It, uh, okay. Though, well, though, he, he, though he does like looking at the podcast stats with me. Oh, hey, look. So I would say, dude, I don't know. I, I, I would say, I don't know, other than to say, on some level, here's what I've seen happen is that people have tried to protect the money uh, within the estate planning that particular way, and others have just left it to the discernment of the uh, beneficiary to figure that out. I've seen it done both ways. I, I don't know the best way to do it. Let's say that your adult child is very bad with money. Is there a way to help your child financially without risking them mismanaging that money? I guess the, the broader question is, I mean, how can you help your child, your adult child who is bad with money without getting taken advantage of yourself, without, you know, basically, you know, enslaving them to your ideas of money? 
the nature of mass media is that people want a, a sort of a crystallized answer that works in all circumstances. But here's the best thing I can come up with this question. Giving your kids money is rarely the answer, right? You can assist them with creating structure and creating plans and accountability, but stroking a check, which used to be things how people would pay people prior to Venmo, <laughs> uh, but doing those sorts of things, I've just found them not helpful because oftentimes the person doesn't have a money problem. They have a behavior problem and giving them money to solve a behavior issue eh, doesn't really work. So if the if the nature of your question is, uh, how do I protect myself from getting burned after I give them money, don't give them money. If the answer is how do I help them without giving them money, that's a completely different question. And it is to create a level of accountability within the planning they put together for themselves. Yeah, that was maybe more of this, the latters is what I was interested in. Let's say my kid is uh, 16 years old. For whatever reason, I have not started saving for college. What is the best way right now to hopefully stash some money away that makes some money and interest or whatever. What's what's the best way besides going to a casino? Or maybe that's the way to do it. It isn't. And, and I think oftentimes when people are behind the eight ball, they'll go to a casino or slap it in crypto and hope for a big rise and that you get lucky. But I think you have to, you know, maybe even the, the talk with the school guidance counselor start to understand, can the student take courses in high school that are much cheaper to get for college credit? Can I... Um, start to look and, and uh, encourage alternative college plans like a, you know, a, a community college to start. So you, you start to make decisions around the price of the education more than the assets you're able to set aside. Of course, you're going to do the best you can to set assets aside. But let's be honest, at six, you know, when your kid's 16 with two years left to go, you're not going to be able to save enough to matter. It's really the, the decision making of where you're going that's going to make a bigger difference. Kind of along the same lines, I suppose, and relevant to my own experience with my parents, how much should I tell my kids about my finances? I'm excited to be right or wrong about what I'm about to say. I mean, my kids are 14 and 11, uh, and they have a pretty good sense of, of finances, although from time to time, we'll ask them what we think things cost, and they're so wildly wrong. It's a little shocking. I believe that it should escalate over time, and it shouldn't be it can be a point of pride, but I think it's really about a, a point of resources is to say, here's the money uh, that uh, your other parent and I uh, have. Here's the money that we have access to on a, a monthly basis. And here are the decisions that we're forced to make with that money. I, I think that's that's it. I, I don't I don't love blanket statements like we'll always take care of you or we're fine. Like I, I think that's incredibly unhelpful to the younger generation. I think speaking in specifics of, hey, you know, oddly enough, 87% of the income we make every month is already spoken for. So it's the only 13% that we get to really make decisions about. That's a lot more helpful than saying, uh, we're comfortable. We're comfortable. <laughs> yes, we're comfortable. <laughs> like that's not helpful. Yeah. And then uh, the corollary to that question, I guess, is also just about inheritance. What is your take on uh, parents letting kids know what is in store for them? Uh, in the estate. That one might be the toughest question you've asked and to give any sort of general answer to, because it's really about the relationship. If you believe they can handle it, I think it just goes to that very question of, hey, do you think they can handle knowing that and it not impacting their decision making in a negative way? Yes, they can. Great. Tell them. If, yeah. you, if you fear 
that it will influence them unduly, then by all means, withhold it. They don't need to know. Yeah. I think my experience with my parents right now is I know that they are financially secure. I know that they own their homes. I know um, I, I, they have income coming in. And that is about it. And we don't, I know that they have investment income, but I don't know how much. Um, and, and I think, as we said before, I'm pretty good with that because I feel like my financial situation also is stable and I don't need to know. Did they pay to get verified on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> this is a good question. I, I think, you know, typically the questions I'm answering for them are how do I install the uh, inkjet uh, cartridge? Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. not on social media. If you ever want to go into tech support, just have a parent. You know, <laughs> that's the nature of the role. Whoever is the youngest is the tech support. Parent. Now, my kids, honestly, they they teach me stuff. They show my parents stuff like we just keep it going. What do I do if my significant other is completely untrustworthy with money? And we have we have a set of ground rules and they just continually get broken. Yeah, you have to ask them if they want to change, right? Like, is their intent to be better? They're just struggling from maybe a mental health or behavior standpoint. If if the if the intent is to do the right thing, then then I think you can place some safeguards in place, put some safeguards in place to help them with that. If malfeasance is their directive, <laughs> then I think it's different, man. I I, I think it's like. There's some self-harm there and you don't want to enable self-harm and you got to protect um, you got to protect the family. So I, I don't know what to say to that other than if the intent is to do right. Yeah. Put some structure in place. If the intent is to do wrong, maybe you reevaluate when the heck's going on, you know, Wait, how do you put structure in place? Structure in place. I mean, you can take away credit cards again. Uh, if someone says they don't want to spend money on their credit card, but they just can't help themselves, it's like, well, hey, what what if we put that in the drawer? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. I think sometimes when people are spiraling, what seems like an obvious solution, like putting a credit card in a drawer or lowering the credit limit, things like that, they don't occur to them because they feel helpless. And so I think by not not being too aggressive and just saying, hey, would this be helpful? You help them. Here's my last question. How do I know when it's time to move on from my financial advisor? Because you generally on, on the, I keep wanting to say on the show, like I'm on a network, uh, on the podcast, generally I've said, you know, it's a good idea to have a financial advisor. When do I know it is time to, uh, to cut off that relationship and find a new one? I love this question. I love for people to have a financial advisor. I mean, that's just the most obvious thing. If you've ever read a column or listened to this show, I want you to have a financial advisor. But I want you to have one that makes your financial life better. And sometimes that's by looking at the fees relative to the returns, which seems a little too scientific for some. But others, are they are they a part of your financial life getting better? Or are they witness to your financial life staying the same or getting worse? And I don't just mean your investments. I don't just mean your net worth. Are they having an impact on your present decision-making. If they aren't, if you get a massive raise and you don't even think about calling them, I would say, why? Why, why, why wouldn't you call them? If you lose your job, if they're not one of the first three, four people you call, ask yourself, why? That's the sort of impact a financial advisor should have on you. Now, it is worth noting, 
Some people separate those. They have a financial advisor that helps with planning and these sorts of things I just talked about. And there's people that manage your wealth. Your stockbroker may not care that you lost your job, right? Your financial planner would. If you don't have that sort of lovely relationship, it exists. It is possible. And I'm not saying this because I do this because I don't do this. I, I am not a financial advisor, but there are amazing financial advisors that can make a huge impact on your life. And if you don't have that feeling, go get it. It's worth it. Here's the question that I, I seem to have most often with people when we talk about people who are managing investments is what percentage of the uh, investments do they take as a management fee? It seems like like 1% is kind of a, of a standard right now. Um, I know some people find that is wildly uh, inappropriate and some people just don't care. Some people think, you know, well, I guess that makes sense. And so the question, I think the unspoken question always is, what is too much? What is enough? Of all the questions you've asked me today, this is the one that threatens to fill up my inbox. Okay. Just so you know, you're not doing me a favor here. 1% is sort of the standard ceiling in my in my opinion. In my opinion, it's the standard ceiling. Uh, depending on how much you have, it can bop down to 50 basis points or 50 bips as people annoyingly call it sometimes, 25. It just, it it depends. More than a more than a point though, more than one percent, there's got to be some amazing justification as to why. Interesting. And I could I can just feel the dings of my email inbox filling up with financial <laughs> advisors all over central Indiana. Thanks, Mason. I need if this that. is the if this is not just a person who who um takes or manages your investments, but then also is maybe a bigger picture financial planner. Same. Yeah, I mean, say it should all be inclusive in, in in my estimation. There are exceptions to this rule that are well justified, but there are many exceptions to this rule that are not justified at all. Well, let's just call it right there because my head is swimming. I feel good. I had a I had a banana this morning, so plenty of potassium to answer these questions. Well, hey, uh, it was a pleasure to be part of your 250th episode. Congrats! I know that is a that's a big thing. So, uh, good job. Well, thanks. You know, maybe uh, you can be on. When we talk to you next for the 500. <laughs> That'll be the next time. Good. I sure. think the people will, will like the break. The time goes really fast. I think it, it does. Be- oh, it does. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for everything uh, that you've done to contribute to the podcast. Uh, this is always my favorite time of the year when I get to talk with you. And and uh, and, and we'll talk soon. Toodaloo, Mason. My thanks again to Pete the Planner. Talking to Pete is one of the most enjoyable things about my job. And I am very grateful for everything that he's contributed to the podcast. And a quick reminder, his column appears regularly in the print edition of IBJ. And you can find several years worth of his work at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, as Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett seeks a third term, He's facing opposition from a faction of his own party for the Democratic nomination. Taylor Wooten outlines the choice primary voters face between Hogsett's two-term record and the vision of state representative Robin Shackelford. Also in this week's issue, John Russell explains how the Goodman Campbell Brain and Spine Physician Group has rebounded from its split from IU Health. And Dave Lindquist profiles science fiction and fantasy writer Maurice Broadus, who has been hired by Marvel Comics and publisher Smart Pop to write stories featuring the character Black Panther. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or 
online at ibj.com. I will say it is a lot easier to access all of this content and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. Thanks again for making time this week and over the last five years for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.